0: Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mpchurch at and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Hey, happy Mother's Day, Mountain Park Church online family. I am uh, so thankful for all you moms who are part of our church. For my mom, Cheryl, love you. Happy Mother's Day. Rochelle, my wife, I love you. Mother of our children and great matriarch of our family-to-be for all of their kids and grandkids and all of that stuff. Um, sincerely, we are just thankful uh, for all of you moms. And uh, we are going to make a hard right <laughs> right now. I don't know how to make a good transition here, but we are starting in on chapter one of Matthew. And let me be totally honest with you. I actually, I actually just preached this message, and it was just over an hour long. So this is my second attempt Um, knowing that I don't want to torture you with that long of a message to get it down. So we're going to dive right in to the first chapter of Matthew. Again, why are we even studying this book? The reason we're going into Matthew right now is Matthew, in the first 200-ish years of early church history, the followers of Jesus uh, viewed Matthew as the preeminent gospel, though it was recorded um, and rewritten the most times, circulated the most times, uh, most mentioned and studied. And the reason for that is that Matthew kind of converges not only what Jesus said, but how to live the way of Jesus, and specifically how to live the way of Jesus in a hostile environment as a minority group. Matthew was written roughly around 80 to maybe 100 AD. And in that decade uh, or two decades of Roman life for Jews underneath Roman occupation, the fire got ramped up super hot uh, from the Roman emperor at the time. And um, and they were experiencing intense uh, persecution, even more than in Paul's time. Uh, the thing is, too, Paul and Peter had already been crucified at this point. The church was kind of even further under pressure and under fire, and Matthew's gospel teaches us not only what to believe, but how to live the way of Jesus. And Let's just be honest, Um, we need more than ever, in my whole lifetime, we need more than ever to not only understand what to believe, that's essential and important, but we need to understand how Jesus has called us to walk and follow him in the way of Jesus today on the earth. As more and more people are viewing Jesus as irrelevant to the problems, to the stresses, to the overwhelming nature of everyday life, Uh, my heart and my passion is that you and I, as we walk through this first seven chapters of Matthew, that we would see that Jesus is the most relevant person for our everyday real life. And so let's begin right in at the top of Matthew. His gospel begins with uh, verse one, of course. It says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. This first sentence is actually packed with a lot more stuff than we would recognize in our modern Western North American Uh, context. But for Matthew, the first two words in there in the Greek are Biblos geneseos. And really what Matthew is saying is in that we are rewriting the Genesis account. Matthew's bringing us all the way back to Genesis. That we are rewriting and making a new Genesis through Jesus Christ. So Matthew's gospel begins by bringing us all the way back to the first book of the Bible, and literally what Matthew is saying here is this is the book of the new Genesis wrought or introduced by Jesus Christ. Another way to say it would be the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. So Matthew, in this first statement, he throws a fastball right down in the strike zone, his First century readers would have been immediately intrigued by this. Matthew is saying that he is writing a new and fresher book of Genesis. He's going all the way back to Genesis. And Matthew is about to give us the full picture of the gospel, the story of God's work in the world and in humanity, uh, God's power at work through Jesus Christ, to us and for us and in us and through us. So Matthew's gospel brings us back to a new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. Genesis is our backdrop. And we need to understand that Matthew in this is now bringing us back into the whole history of Israel, into the whole record of scripture. Matthew here in this first sentence of his gospel is now bringing us back into the entirety of the Old Testament. I wanna just highlight a few of the specific parts of this gospel that Matthew is, is including in this new story of Jesus, how Jesus fits into this greater story. Number one, in the beginning, God created everything we can see and things we can't. Matthew's bringing us back to that. Uh, by bringing us back to Genesis. Number two, in the beginning, God made the earth and Eden specifically, the Garden of Eden, as a cosmic temple where he could meet with people. And in Genesis, we're told that God would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. Matthew's bringing us back to that beginning relationship between God and humanity. Number three, in the beginning, God made two icons, two uh, people made in his image, Adam and Eve, and his assignment for them was to rule and govern the earth under his leadership as his representatives, as uh, Matthew gives us the new genesis of Jesus Christ. He's bringing us back to not only um, the relationship that God wanted to have with humanity, but he's bringing us back to humanity's call from God from the very beginning to rule and subdue the earth, to reign on it and govern as his representatives on his behalf. Matthew is saying Jesus is now the new beginning of everything God had done before. The problem was, number four, Adam and Eve, thought they knew better than God in the garden, and instead of walking in obedience to him, they usurped his rule by listening and being fed, literally, by the serpent in the garden. In so doing, in wanting to be like God, in knowing good and evil, in in indulging themselves in the fruit uh, of the one tree that was forbidden by God, they disqualified themselves Sin entered the picture, and they disqualified themselves from ruling the earth on God's behalf. And for that one dark moment, they tried to act as gods and goddesses on their own, apart from God. They wanted the kingdom without the king. They were banished from the garden by God. But we see in this story that God would find another way to restore humanity and his creation. The descendants of Adam and Eve were no better than Adam and Eve, and they continued to descend into sin. They continued to entrench themselves as usurpers wanting to rule on the earth without God. They wanted that kingdom without the king, and generation after generation descended deeper into that until we have the story in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel that brought things to an all-new level. It's in that point and at that moment that we see that God actually intervenes in that story of Babel, and God intervenes and creates a new way to establish his rule on earth, first through Abraham and then through the nation of Israel. Uh, Scott McKnight, in his book, The King Jesus Gospel, says it this way, God chose Abraham, then God chose Israel. God would give Israel the task of governing. So God created a covenant between himself and Abraham and Israel, a covenant that was to be eternal and redemptive. God promised to be with Israel as the one who was for Israel. What God did was to transfer the governing assignment given to Adam and Eve to Abraham and Israel. As the original icons, Adam and Eve, were to govern this world on God's behalf, so Abraham and Israel were to bless the nations. Matthew starts his gospel by saying this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, a descendant of David and Abraham. By linking Jesus to David and Abraham, Matthew is bringing Jesus into this cosmic story of God and humanity. He's bringing us back to God's original heart and desire to walk in relationship with humanity on the earth. He's bringing us back with Jesus now in view of the original mandate and responsibility he gave to man to rule as his representatives on the earth. Matthew is saying Jesus is the new genesis of this original design from God. He's a descendant of David and of Abraham. Jesus, his name literally um, means Joshua. The name Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. But Matthew says that he's not just Jesus, he's Jesus the Messiah. He's Jesus, the descendant of David and of Abraham. So not only does he have a distinctly human name and Matthew begins to sketch out the the rough sort of exterior of our theology of Jesus as God on the earth, fully man, fully God. Jesus is distinctly human, fully human, but also divine, the Messiah, the anointed one. So Jesus Uh, is the Hebrew name for Joshua, and Christ or the anointed or Messiah is a royal title that Matthew conjoins together with that. And so we see in this already in verse 1 that Matthew is linking Jesus to the two great promises of God in the Old Testament scriptures, the two promises of God, his promise to David that through one of David's sons, God would establish an eternal kingdom ruled by a king who would come from the line of David. Uh, and that's 2 Samuel 7. You can find that First Chronicles 17. And also he's linking, Matthew is linking this to the not only promise of the Messiah to come from the line of David, an eternal king to rule, and govern the earth, but also the great promise God made to Abraham that through his seed, not only would Israel be blessed, but every nation on the earth, all people would be blessed. You can find that promise in Genesis 12, 18, and 22. So in a sense, uh, Frederick Bruner in his commentary, and this is such a masterful commentary. You're going to hear me quote him a ton, uh, in the days and weeks to come. But uh, Bruner says this, Son of David says, Israel, here's your Messiah. Son of Abraham says, nations, here is your hope. So Matthew writing to his primarily Jewish audience at the time, he's saying, in Jesus, you are going to find your hopes for the Messiah The promises of God to Israel for a Messiah are found in Jesus, but not only for Israel. This Jesus will be the hope of the whole world. So that first sentence in Matthew's gospel is packed with meaning in literally every single word. In Matthew's mind and to his first century readers, he's creating a new beginning with Jesus. A new beginning, a fresh start on God's plan from Genesis 1, 2, and part of 3. A new beginning with Jesus, the Messiah and eternal King, who is not only the hope of Israel, but the Savior of the whole world, and one through whom all people on the earth can experience the blessing of God. This is what Matthew is crafting in this first sentence. And then Matthew leads us into a genealogy, which for most of us, when we read it, we're like, oh, I can't even pronounce these names. I have no idea who these people were. I have no idea how they fit into the story. Let me just start with the first section. We're not gonna read the whole genealogy, but Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Interesting first edition. Mark that. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nation. Nation was the father of Salmon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Very interesting second edition. Mark that one. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Interesting. Number three, Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Super interesting addition. Number four, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. So as Matthew begins this genealogy, it's totally lost to us. But he throws in some scorching, scandalous details of Israel's past. Matthew is not primarily just presenting a historical recounting of the people that lived in Israel. He's actually presenting a theology to us, a doctrine of God to us. What he's saying in here, and these women specifically, the four of them that he includes in this first section of the gospel, you would never include unless you were being very purposeful in trying to provoke people to a certain response. These women were scandalous. Bathsheba, it's interesting, he ends with Bathsheba He can't even bring himself to say that she was the, you know, the illegitimate sort of wife of David. He says she was the wife of Uriah, whom David killed so that he could be with Bathsheba. Um, he includes Ruth here, who was not even Israelite. She was a Moabitess. And she actually came from the clan of Lot, who was known for incestuous relationships. Matthew as well is talking here about Tamar. She is the one who seduced her father-in-law into having sex with her so that she could continue on the lineage um, rightfully that their family had kind of pushed her out of. And so we see in all of these stories, Rahab, she was a prostitute in Jericho. That was part of Israel's story in capturing that city. Matthew is giving us not just a recounting of people and names and times, he's giving us a theology of God. Bruner says it this way, the gospel of Matthew teaches that God can use not only non-Israelite Gentiles, but he can also forgive, overcome, and use Jewish and Gentile sinners soiled but repentant persons for his great purposes in history the scandal that matthew is writing here this is like soap opera level scandal matthew is writing uh, for his first century o- audience the scandal of these gentile sinner women who were morally despicable according to you know good Jewish culture, you know, how they defined being good morally, these women that he adds in here make his intention very clear. And in this first section of the genealogy, Matthew's intention is to preach the gospel of God's character and his divine mercy. Matthew is giving us a doctrine of God's character and God's divine mercy in this first grouping of people in the genealogy. These women were morally and ethically unclean, but they're illustrations of the sovereignty of God, driven by his character of divine mercy in overruling human sin, And weakness, the very things that you would think would discredit and disqualify Israel are the very things Matthew brings out into the forefront to say, look, God is merciful. The doctrine of God would say that he is driven by mercy, that he is powerful and sovereign and can overcome every and any obstacle in your life or my life, their life then or our life now. Nothing is unredeemable by God. And this is what Matthew is saying in this first line This is a theology, a doctrine of God's divine mercy. This second section, which we're not going to read, then traces Israel from Bathsheba's son Solomon all the way down to exile. And so we've come, you know, from Abraham all the way up to David and Solomon, the, the pinnacle of Israel's, um, you know, uh, place in the world, they're the pinnacle of their ability to walk in obedience to God and, and live in the blessing and goodness of God. From here, we see them chart down and descend from there into exile. And we see in this second grouping, now we move from the doctrine of God's mercy driven by his character to God's justice in judgment. Not only does he give mercy, but he also requires something of our lives. He demands not just sort of, um, you know, haphazard obedience to him, but we see in the fall of, from Solomon to exile. God demanding his people live in obedience to him and them experiencing the consequences of rejecting God's leadership in their life and thereby bringing on themselves the divine judgment part of God's character. The story doesn't end there in the genealogy. Matthew moves on to the third line and that's where we go from the exile to Jesus from the exile back up to Jesus, and in this we see the doctrine of God's faithfulness. So Matthew is teaching us this theology, this doctrine of God, his mercy, his judgment, but then his faithfulness. God had made a promise to David and to Abraham that through them he would bring into the world a son, An heir who would be the Messiah of Israel, but also would save and deliver all humanity from their sin. The thing I think Matthew is bringing us to here as he works to the end of this genealogy, which ends with the birth of Jesus, is that God is faithful. We need to understand that his timing is not our timing. God never seems to come when you want him. As Israel is descending from Solomon down into exile, over generations and generations, they were crying out to God. But God didn't come when they wanted. God came when the timing was right and perfect. Part of what Matthew is wanting us to grasp is that God's Uh, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the nature and character of God is driven by his divine mercy, is driven by his justice and judgment, is driven by his faithfulness, but that we must entrust our lives and the timing of God in our life To God. We must release God from expecting him to work in our life and in the world according to our schedule. He always comes. This is Matthew's point, I think. He always comes and his timing is always perfect, but it's not always what we would prefer. Bruner again says The finished genealogy says God promised a Christ and he delivered. And between promise and fulfillment, God used the ups and downs of Israel beneficially to shape a little theology of the character of the mercy, judgment, and faithfulness of God. All God's works begin in mercy and proceed through judgment and issue in good faith. God is love, but holy love. And finally, faithful love. The genealogy shows how Matthew read his Old Testament, Christocentrically, messianically. For Matthew, it is clear, Bruner says, and this may be the deepest point of the genealogy, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is trying to say. This moves Matthew into verse 17. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. In Matthew's summary of this genealogy of where we've gone so far, Matthew's giving us a summary statement of God's nature, his mercy, justice, and faithfulness, God's sovereignty as he looks back over the events of human history. One of the purposes, I think, of Matthew's was to teach people that God is Lord over the past, present, and the future. If we want to walk in the way of Jesus, if we want to walk yoked to Jesus, as we learned last week from Matthew 11, we need to understand and see God the way that Jesus did. We need to release God from our expectation of timing in our life and in the world. And we need to see that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, all powerful, that he's in control and Lord over the past, present, and future. We need to see in God that there is nothing that He cannot redeem in our life. There's nothing that can stop God. When you read every name in this genealogy, with every name, it's like a nail in the coffin of the plans of the devil, of sin and darkness, of evil and the rule of the kingdom of darkness. Every name, is added with an exclamation mark that God's ways, God's purposes and his plans cannot be thwarted even by the devil, even by the kingdom of darkness. Every name is an exclamation point on the sovereignty of God. And Jesus modeled for us as we walk through Matthew, we see Jesus modeled for us a life of complete understanding and trust in the nature of God. That trust in the nature of God led him to trust in the timing of God. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I just want to take just a second to pause and just ask you the question, Do you need to release God from stuff that you've been expecting and demanding him to do in your life in your own time? Question number two, I want to ask you right now, are there things in your life, in your past, or maybe even the present, that you even wonder if God can redeem and renew and restore and reuse. Matthew's genealogy is a triumphant yes. This is the God that Jesus trusted and followed. This is the God that we must see in the way that Jesus did if we're to walk in the way that he did. It's Matthew's sermon so far on God's absolute, absolute power and authority. I love how Charles Finney in his book of systematic theology says it. It's so beautiful. He's talking about God's sovereignty, and he's speaking of why we're afraid to talk about the sovereignty of God. He says it this way. You know, he lived a few hundred years ago, so the language isn't quite the way we would say it, but here we go. Charles Finney says this, They, the people that are afraid to talk about the sovereignty of God, they have been led either by false teaching or in some way to conceive of the divine sovereignty as an iron and unreasonable despotism, which means absolute power, or tyranny. So they believe in some way that divine sovereignty is a vehicle for God's uh, absolute tyranny and power. That is, Finney continues, they have understood the doctrine of divine sovereignty to so represent God. So they believe that God is represented by tyrannical, authoritative power that seeks to burn things under it like a hot iron. They therefore fear and reject it, Finney continues, but let it be remembered and forever understood to the eternal joy and unspeakable consolation of all holy beings. Pay attention to this, that God's sovereignty is nothing else than infinite love. I'm going to repeat that. God's sovereignty is nothing else than infinite love directed by infinite knowledge in such disposal of events as to secure the highest well-being of the universe that in the whole details of creation, providence and grace, there is not a solitary measure of his that is not infinitely wise and good. Finney is saying, God's sovereignty is driven by and directed by infinite love and knowledge that is driven and directed by the good and well-being of the universe that he's made, your life, our world as disfigured and distorted and dysfunctional and evil and all of that. God's desire, his sovereignty is to act in ways that are good driven by his love. That's his desire in your life and in my life. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 could uh, challenge us not to worry about our life. He said, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make clothing. Yet Solomon, in all of his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? How could Jesus say that? He could say that because he knew that God, his father, was driven and motivated by his infinite love. Jesus knew the character and the nature of his father was a nature bent toward love and mercy and kindness and justice and goodness and faithfulness. Yes, There is parts of God's character that are that are that make judgments necessary, accountability necessary, but the driving motivator of God is his love. That's why it says in the scriptures God is love. And the highest law of God's is love. Jesus understood the character. His whole Sermon on the Mount is rooted in his understanding of the nature and character of God as being inherently good, loving, and trustworthy. This is what Matthew is saying in this genealogy. Not only is God sovereign, he's all-powerful, which is omnipotent. He's all-knowing, which is omniscient and omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time, but he is driven by his love for us and what is good for us according to him. Do you believe that about God for your life? This is what provided the foundation of Jesus's life and ministry. How Jesus was able to live the way he did was because he knew the Father. He knew his nature and character. Jesus trusted him with every part of his life. That's what allowed Jesus to follow him wholeheartedly. And that's the God, the doctrine of God that Matthew's bringing into the picture here. Matthew continues on. This is how Jesus was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. A couple things that we learn in here. Number one, it's the Holy Spirit who brings Jesus to life inside of Mary as a real person in her and to her. Matthew is forming again a theology of God that includes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this same Holy Spirit that makes Jesus alive in and to us today. It's the Spirit and not human initiative that brings Jesus into personal life. In uh, an illustrative form, Matthew is describing in picture, in story, what the propositional theology of the epistles describes. It's a pictorial theology that Matthew is describing here. We see in here that this birth story again, if there were scandals in the genealogy, Matthew's bringing us into this scandalous details of the birth story. He's not shying away from that. And part of what Matthew wants to teach us about the nature and character of God is that his ways are not our ways. No one in their right mind, would have brought about the Messiah into the world in such a scandalous way. The fact that a young virgin girl betrothed to be married would become pregnant outside of marriage in that time and in that place, in that moment in history, was unconscionable. It was the height of scandal. And in this, Matthew's painting this lofty picture of God that not only does he not work according to our timing, his ways are not our ways. Bruner says it this way, seen in the context of the whole gospel, with its especially embarrassing crucifixion, the embarrassing pregnancy of Mary, the first narrative in the gospel may have served Matthew's purpose by showing at the very beginning that God's ways are not our ways, And that God's righteousness is not our righteousness. Matthew then gives us a picture again of the nature and character of God in Joseph's response. We are called to emulate the character and response of Joseph who offered to Mary a love that covers a multitude of sin and offenses that Joseph wanted to quietly Divorce her, wanted not to publicly shame her. Joseph was willing to take on to himself the shame of the situation in that way, shield Mary from that. The love that Joseph offered was a love that covers, kind of love Peter talks about in 1 Peter 4 8. He says, most important of all, continue to show deep love, for love covers a multitude of sin. Joseph is never recorded as even speaking in the New Testament. Matthew records the most sort of scenes with Joseph in it, but what we see from Joseph is a simple, unglamorous, faithful obedience to God. Joseph lets his action of obedience do the speaking for him. In uh in Matthew, I mean, Joseph is described as being righteous. And we see Matthew is beginning to paint a picture again of God's character, the doctrine of God, but of righteousness. And not just a righteousness of perfection morally, but this Righteousness that Matthew is talking about in the life of Joseph is a righteousness that is vertically oriented toward God in obedience to everything that God invites him to, obedience to the plans and purposes and desires of God, but also a righteousness horizontally. A sensitivity to God, but a sensitivity to people, and we see this shine brilliantly in the life of Jesus, that Jesus is righteous before God, that he is fully and wholly obedient to God, but Jesus expresses the righteousness of God to others in the form of a sensitivity toward people. The name of Jesus and the mission of Jesus are tackled next by Matthew Jesus' name means God saves or salvation of the Lord. And Matthew gives us the Jesus who is the Messiah Savior. And then Matthew says that it is this Jesus who will save people from their sins. We see in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is continually bringing us back to Jesus' primary concern for us which is what is taking place in our heart, not what is taking place out there. When Matthew says Jesus will save us from our sins, it's almost like a slap in the face of the first century Jews who were looking for a Messiah to save them from the sin of other people, to save them from the evil uh, government ruling structures of their day. Bruner says it this way, and I want to kind of land the plane with a a thought here. There had been three great bondages in Israel's history, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and now the Roman. A Messiah who came now and did not at least deliver the people politically from their enemies and from all their enemies' sins could hardly be considered a serious or full-blooded Messiah. A liberator who came only to save from sins and not also from sinners seem piddly. A Messiah who did not save his people politically and economically must have struck a serious Jew as an excessively spiritual, or in the words of later Christian theology, as a docetic Messiah. But Jesus's work in the gospel is first of all to liberate his people from their own evils. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew's Jesus will not rivet his people's attention on an external enemy as most radical movements do, nor will he forge a burning hatred for enemies by which to ignite a revolution. But I say to you, love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. Jesus concentrates the fire of almost his entire gospel on his church's sins. This gospel teaches profound self-criticism It rarely permits God's people to descend into the cheaper, easier, and seemingly more effective demonizing of external enemies. Jesus is constantly more interested. And Matthew's painting this picture right in chapter one. He's more interested in what's happening in you than what's happening around you. Finally, he says that he is a manual God with us. Matthew gives us a different picture of God. A God who we see in the Old Testament scripture is holy and separate and and above all, above all authority, all rule, all power. A God who is completely a consuming fire of holiness and righteousness. A God who many would say would never stoop to defile himself by coming down to the earth. In Matthew, we have a different picture of God, a God so great he can come down. A God so great, he can come down, and not only can, but he wants to and did. Bruner again says, the greatness of the gospel's God, in short, is that this God not only sends, he comes. The theology of God from Matthew is not only can he come into the middle of the mess of this world and your life of sin and dysfunction and all of that. He can and he does and he wants to. This is what Paul was hinting at when he said in Ephesians 1, verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Verse 5 God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God's desire, this doctrine of God that Matthew is painting is a God who enters into our world, who enters into the middle of your struggle and your pain and your dysfunction, who's not intimidated by your sin, who's not overcome by your rejection of him, by your choices, the God who enters in. And in chapter one, Matthew gives us this soaring theological foundation of the nature and character of God, the God that Jesus deeply knew and trusted, which allowed him to live the way he lived. So what is your view of God? Is your God similar to the one that Matthew portrays here? Is your view of God one who's driven by divine mercy, justice, judgment, faithfulness, and love towards you? is your view of God, one who you can trust, a God who doesn't do things the same way that you do them and doesn't operate in the same timing you do, but is fully faithful and trustworthy, a God who seeks more than anything your good and life for you. I think today we have to just take a moment and, ask God and repent for demanding that God work in our life in ways we want to and in the timing we would prefer, for demanding that God work in our family and in our work environment and demanding that he work in the world and in our governments and culture the way that we want him to, the vision we have for life and the timing we want we need to actually release God from that. This is how Jesus walked. Is he fully released into God's care and domain, his timing and his nature, the way that God would want to handle the everyday situations of life Jesus fully entrusted to him. And that's his invitation to you and I today. As we continue on in this book of Matthew, I want you to read not only chapter one, but chapter two this week. As we continue on, we're going to see that Jesus' understanding of God, as Matthew gives us this theology of God, Jesus' understanding of God is what led him to be able to walk the way that he did in life, to carry life in the way that he did, the way that he says you and I can. So I hope you have an amazing week this week. I hope that you are inspired to recalibrate your view of God in your life. Take some time this week to release God from your expectations of how you want him to move and when you want him to act. Take time, as Matthew says, to look in and say, God, what do you want to do in me Not what are you doing around me, but what do you want to do in me? And see where Jesus leads this week. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at, mystory at mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.